You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story at AmericasWebRadio.com. Today, my guest is Jeff Johnson. He's a personal friend of mine who will talk about the Pacific War Operation Downfall, the planned invasion of the Japanese home islands. This is an important and timely subject as we approach the 75th anniversary of VJ Day this coming September 2nd. Jeff is a veteran of the United States Navy, having served four years on U.S. military bases in Japan during the final years of the Cold War. After leaving the Navy, Jeff returned to Japan, where he worked as a civilian in Tokyo before coming back to the U.S. with his wife, Mayumi, of the Nagasaki Prefecture. Jeff is my aide-de-camp at the Atlanta World War II Roundtable, where I serve as their commander. He is a member of the Georgia chapter of the Mighty 8th Air Force Association and a member of the Commemorative Air Force. He recently served as a technical advisor for the National Geographic Channel's television documentary, World War II in Europe, The Voices from the Front. Jeff is employed by Cox Enterprises in Atlanta, where he serves on the leadership of Cox's Military Veterans Employee Resource Group. Jeff, welcome to the show, my friend. Pleasure to be here, Pete, my friend. Thank you. All right. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you became interested in the Pacific War and the planned invasion of the Japanese homeland, known as Operation Downfall. Well, yeah, Pete, basically uh, three things, and I'll touch on them briefly. First, there was my military service. Uh, I was uh, stationed in Japan with the Navy, and while there, I got to know the Japanese people, and I found them to be a, a wonderful people and a, a fascinating culture, and I was puzzled. Uh, as to how we possibly went to war with a people as nice and sophisticated as the Japanese. And, uh, you know, while I was in Japan with the Navy, uh, I saw the Emperor Hirohito. This was on April 29th, uh, 1988. This was uh, the final birthday appearance of Hirohito at the Imperial Palace, and you could go there and, and, uh, and see him. He comes out and he uh, greets well-wishers. And I, I stood in this crowd of thousands of Japanese people, they were waving Japanese flags and shouting bonsai. And I, I remember I looked at Hirohito and I wondered, uh, I thought to myself, am I looking at an innocent figurehead like we've always been told uh, who is controlled by a militarist? Or am I actually looking at a uh, war criminal uh, with blood on his hands? And that question puzzled me. And I, I, I determined that someday I would look for the answers there. Um, I have a Japanese wife. Her family was impacted by the war. My, my wife's mother, Sayako, uh, she survived strafing by uh, an American fighter pilot during the war. And uh, my wife's father, Toshio, he was nearly killed by the second atomic bomb. Uh, my wife has a grandfather and an uncle who were soldiers in the Imperial Japanese Army. And then, uh, Pete, you and I have a mutual friend here in Atlanta, uh, 95-year-old Bill Montgomery, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. He fought the entire 
Battle of Iwo Jima, 36 days combat with the 5th Marine Division. And uh, after Iwo, uh, Bill was slated to invade the Japanese home islands, uh, but the war ended, and uh, thankfully he never did. Uh, Bill trained uh, for an invasion, like I said, but he was never actually informed of the battle plans. Now, after the Japanese surrender, uh, Bill did land in my wife's hometown of Sasebo, Japan, for occupation duty. Uh, so, Pete, I wanted to make sense of all these things and understand how the Pacific War has impacted my life, my generation, and the lives of my family and, and my friend Bill Montgomery, and, and that's why I looked into the subject. All right, very good. You know, I understand you recently put your thoughts and research into a presentation that is making rounds of different veteran organizations. You've been invited to give your presentation at the National Museum of the Mighty 8th Air Force in Savannah on August 20th, I believe. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I give a presentation that blends the narratives of Bill Montgomery and my father-in-law, Toshi, uh, Toshio Matsunaga, uh, with documented and relatively unknown facts about the atomic bombing missions and the planned invasion of the Japanese home islands. Uh, this presentation is uh, very visual, intensively uh, visual. It contains video clips, uh, animated reenactments of bombing missions uh, that appear on the projector screen. Uh, it, it tells what would have happened had the atomic bombs not brought the Pacific War to an early end. Okay, super. Let's get started. What do you want people to know about the Pacific War and Operation Downfall, the planned invasion of the Japanese homeland? Well, I, I think people need to know that the planned invasion of Japan, which was a mutual suicide uh, pact between America and Japan, it nearly happened. And to understand what was at stake in the invasion of, uh, with an invasion of Japan and why an invasion was thought necessary, I think it's important, important to first understand uh, the Japanese enemy in some context. I think Americans are generally familiar with our Nazi Germany enemy. Uh, we understand how Hitler came to power and the rise of the Third Reich, but, but Americans seem to know little about the Imperial Japanese other than they were bad people who attacked Pearl Harbor. Government. 
Now, although wars are constantly fought inside Japan during the feudal period, only 5% of the the Japanese people, the samurai class, fight them. And uh, I'll fast forward uh, some more. So this this is an event that every Japanese school child learns about. They don't learn much about the Pacific War in Japan these these days, but every school teaches this event. I'm, I'm talking about the year... 1549. This is the arrival of St. Francis Xavier. He's a Jesuit missionary, and he he arrives in Japan, and he spreads Christianity. And uh, many Japanese peasants convert to Christianity, including some of the samurai class. Uh, But soon the shogun, the ruler, he he starts to uh, conclude that Christianity is being used for the European conquest of Japan, and he doesn't like that. Uh, so in the year 1626, uh, Japanese uh, Christians are persecuted. Thousands of them are martyred, and the surviving Japanese Christians are, are driven underground. Uh, so Japan is fed up with Western meddling at this point. And in the year 1633, Japan enters a period of isolationism called Sakoku. Uh, nearly all contact with the outside world is banned. Uh, there's a death penalty for any Japanese person who leaves Japan and tries to come back. There's a death penalty for foreigners who arrive in Japan. This is total isolationism. And this period of isolationism actually leads to 200 years of peace and stability inside Japan. Now, next, I'm going to fast forward to the year 1853, right before the American Civil War. There is a great disruption in Japan. Again, something every Japanese school child learns about today. And this is called the Perry Expedition. So what's happening here is, is in the United States, uh, the U.S. is in, in the swing of the Industrial Revolution. And the United States needs well oil. We need well oil for our lamps to light the night, uh, to oil our factories of the Industrial Revolution. We need access to Japanese ports because the Japanese waters are teeming with wells. So at that time... 1853, President Millard Fillmore sends Commodore Matthew C. Perry and a U.S. Navy flotilla to Japan to engage in some gunboat diplomacy. So Perry arrives in Tokyo, and he gives a letter of friendship uh, to the Japanese. And he says, Japan, you need to open. You need to become our friends. Uh, Let's trade together. And at the same time, you know, while the Japanese are thinking about this letter, Perry conducts a live-fire exercise in Tokyo Bay, demonstrating that U.S. naval guns can wipe out Japanese coastal cities. Well, this scares the heck out of the Japanese. And they look around and they see the Spanish in the Philippines, the British in Hong Kong and Malaysia. Uh, The Russian Navy will also pay a similar port visit to Japan. So Japan gets the message, and Japan realizes that isolationism must end. Uh, Japan then concludes that Japan must either become an empire or Japan will become part of someone else's empire. This is a very reasonable conclusion of the Japanese. Uh, This leads to what's known as the Meiji Restoration in 1868. Feudalism ends. Japan modernizes. Their, Their emperor becomes more like a Western emperor wearing a military uniform. And Japan engages on a national campaign uh, to catch up with the West. And part of this national campaign yeah, is, is now a devotion to the emperor. The emperor is a center of life suddenly in Japan. Uh, the divine mission right, of right. the Japanese mm-hmm. people, the superiority of the Japanese race. This is nothing less than Japan's version of manifest 
destiny. They see what the West is doing, and Japan says, we need to do the same, but our own version. So Japan then engages into in a, a couple of wars uh, to head off expansionism from outsiders. In 1894, Japan goes to war with okay, China no, and wins. It, but, uh, uh, 1904, oh, Japan goes to, to war with Russia to okay, head off Russian you, expansionism in Asia. And Japan wins this war. This is the first time an Asian nation defeats a European nation. Japan stuns the world. Uh, we get to 1914, World War One, And guess what? Japan enters World War One on the side of the Allies. They align with France and England against Germany. So what's Japan's goal here? It's, it's simple. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Japan wants respect. They want membership in the Empire Club. So World War One ends. Uh, we get to the Paris Peace Conference, and Japan puts forth something known as the Racial Equality Proposal, which demands equality for non-white members of the League of Nations. But the proposal is rejected by two countries, Australia and the United States. So this leads to a rise of ultra-nationalism in Japan. Uh, we get to 1926, uh, Hirohito becomes emperor. 1931, the Japanese army is now on expansion. Uh, they invade Manchuria. And in 1933, Japan walks out of the League of Nations. We get to 1937, Japan goes to war with China. This is now Japan on a war of aggression. You've heard about the rape of Nanking, but something that a lot of Americans don't hear much about is something called the Asian Holocaust. 30 million Chinese will be killed. Another 20 million throughout Asia will die. This, you know, Compare this to 6 million uh, Jews killed by the Nazis. Uh, the Japanese didn't use concentration camps. This is a large-scale holocaust. 1940, Japan joins the Axis, Pire, uh, Axis powers, and they announced the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity uh, Spear. Uh, this is an Asian Monroe Doctrine. 1941, the U.S. freezes assets and places an oil, oil embargo on Japan, and December 7, 1941, Japan attacks the U.S. Navy based at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, Pete, I think you can see that the Pacific War, in large sense, did not start with Pearl Harbor and has its origins long ago involving early contact with the West. And this truly was a clash of cultures like two freight trains on a collision course. Yeah, it's pretty much a train wreck, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty much unavoidable. We have to go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, Jeff, uh, let me ask you to explain how the Japanese government mobilized a mostly peaceful people, I mean peasants and farmers, for total war. Well, it, it wasn't easy. Um, you, you know, you, you have to understand, um, go back to um, Japan's uh, attempt to westernize, right? The, the Japanese people, uh, as Japan westernized, uh, they, they saw what was going on, and they kind of liked the idea of uh, westernization. Um, they um, they thought that, uh, you know, they should get um, uh, civil rights, and, and they, they really weren't interested in a war of aggression. Uh, so what the Japanese did is um, they, they embarked upon a, a program called National Spiritual Mobilization. Uh, this program was designed to get the Japanese on a war footing. And it organized at the, the local level. So uh, Japanese families all across Japan, they were expected to join uh, neighborhood associations, which were, were much like the uh, like a, a, a homeowners association that we have here in America. And uh, this was a way for uh, the Japanese government uh, to, to keep an eye on the Japanese people and, and, and also get the Japanese people involved in, in the war. Um, so, you know, it had mixed results. Not all the Japanese were, were interested in a war of expansion. and A lot of them just went along with the program. Um, there's a saying in Japan that the nail that sticks out will be hammered. And, and the, the Japanese government actually enlisted uh, the, uh, the secret police, or the, uh, uh, the thought ministry to crack down on any dissent. So it was very, it was very challenging for the Japanese government. There were a lot of Japanese people that were holding on board with mobilization, but a lot of them just kind of went along with it just to stay out of trouble. Uh, what, why do you think they bombed Pearl Harbor? What were they thinking about? Uh, why the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor? Um, well, the bombing of Pearl Harbor was a huge gamble and something Hirohito reluctantly supported. Uh, the Japanese wanted to cripple what they viewed as Japan's main obstacle to controlling the Western Pacific, namely the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet. Uh, by attacking Pearl Harbor, Japan hoped to put the U.S. Navy out of action long enough to build a defensive uh, buffer in the Pacific. Uh, this defensive buffer involved Imperial Japanese Army garrisons and, and air bases throughout the Pacific uh, to be established before the American Navy could rebuild and react. Uh, Japan's defensive buffer and Imperial Navy uh, will enable Japan to exploit natural resources in Southeast Asia, such as oil and rubber. Uh, this is to fuel Japan's industry and, and military. Huh. So, so do you think the Japanese gambled that the United States uh, either wouldn't put up a fight or wouldn't be able to? Uh, yeah, yeah. You must consider that at this time in 1941, it looked like Hitler would win the European war and take out England and the Soviet Union. Uh, that would leave only isolationist America with a crippled navy and a very small army in opposition of the Axis powers. 
Uh, the Japanese viewed the Americans as weak, with no appetite for war, and we were certainly transmitting that message. Uh, the Japanese saw us as a lazy people, gangsters who listened to jazz music, and we advocated isolationism, and we certainly lacked fighting spirit. Okay. I know before Pearl Harbor, the United States had the 17th largest army in the world. Do you think Japan wanted to invade the continent of the United States and defeat the U.S. Army on our own soil? Oh, no, no. I, that, I think that's a huge misconception. Japan could have never logistically sustained an invasion of the U.S. mainland from all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Japan had absolutely no interest in invading and taking over America, so I, I don't think we're at risk of speaking Japanese today. Um, after, after December 7, 1941, most Americans naturally assumed the worst and thought Japan might invade California and reach the Rocky Mountain, the Rocky Mountains, uh, but that was never part of Japan's plan and, and never would be. Well, okay. I know that uh, Admiral Yamamoto said he had no plans to invade, invade America. There would be a, a gun behind every blade of grass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, before we went to break, you mentioned that uh, throughout Japan's history, about 95% of the people had been peaceful, with only about 5%, the samurais, being lawyers. So how did the Japanese government prepare these people, peaceful people who probably didn't know how to use a weapon for war? Uh, well, it, it goes back to the the uh, national uh, our, the national spiritual mobilization movement that I, I, I talked about uh, a few years ago. And, you know, the Japanese people were like, you go to the 1920s, this was a golden age in Japan. The Japanese adopted Western fashion. Uh, inside Japan, art, literature, movie making, it was really taking off. Uh, the Japanese people really wanted a, a voice in their government and civil rights. Uh, they weren't... Uh, eager to go off and fight wars of aggression. Huh. So you might say that maybe the Japanese government tried to catch up with the West and become part of the Empire Club, I guess you could say. The Japanese people also want to catch up with the West and have more social freedom. Is that correct? That's exactly right. The, the democratic movement inside Japan did not please the traditionalist and militarist uh, many who were former samurai and who were taking control of the Japanese government. Uh, this uh, led to traditionalist factions uh, plotting against politicians and even some members of the military. Uh, this involved assassinations and uh, certainly suppression of the Japanese people. Uh, like I mentioned, the Japanese deployed the, uh, the Kanpeitai, the secret police, the, the Toko, the home ministry thought police, uh, to suppress uh, the press, authors, filmmakers, political activists, uh, citizens, anyone opposing the militarists. And you also have to uh, consider that when the Japanese economy crashed about the time of the Great Depression, uh, traditionalists blamed Western democratic ideals. So this is when, in 1937, the Japanese government uh, starts the National Spiritual Mobilization Program. And like I mentioned, it had mixed results. Uh, a lot of Japanese went along with it, but others just went along uh, to get along, you, you, you can say. Yeah, okay. Well, okay, what about the Japanese soldiers? Uh, you know, not most of them were not samurai families. So how did Japan take the, these peasants, these young men, and turn them into the brutal soldiers that fought in World War II for, and they were willing to die for the emperor? Well, that's a good question, and the short answer is through a system of brutality itself. 
Japanese military leaders realized that Japan could not win a fair fight with China and against the West. So the Japanese military adopted a doctrine of asymmetrical warfare. Japanese fighting spirit, Yamato Damashi, as it was called, would always prevail over the enemy's weaponry, uh, the enemy's military strategy, tactics, and numerical superiority. So first, the Japanese military infiltrated the public school system. Japanese boys were indoctrinated to grow up and become soldiers willing to die for their emperor. Uh, when young boys were old enough to be conscripted, their military basic training will be brutal and absolutely inhumane. There are beatings from NCOs and officers that happen virtually every day, sometimes with wooden bats. Uh, there are punches that break bones. Uh, many recruits couldn't take it. Uh, deaths from beatings and suicide in basic training were not at all uncommon. Uh, the Japanese military also perverted the Bushido Code. This is the code of the samurai. The code's honor and respectful treatment of the enemy was thrown out, while the Bushido Code's self-sacrificial aspects, like dying for your master, were retained. Uh, the Japanese soldiers were basically non-persons, and they, they had no human rights. Uh, orders from superiors are the same as orders from the emperors. The Japanese soldiers were brutalized to react, not to think. And this system of brutality was thought to create superior fighting spirit, Yamato Damashi, that would wipe out all traces of humanity in the Japanese soldier. So brutalized Japanese soldiers became brutalized, and they fought fanatically on the battlefield, and often committed horrible atrocities. So you think the brutalization of a Japanese soldier helped explain things like uh, the rape of Nanking or the Bataan Death March, maybe even the comfort women that they use in occupied territories to, to please their troops? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, Japanese historian Saburo Ienaga, who was a critic of the Pacific War, he has observed that because human rights were not recognized inside Japan, especially the rights of women, human rights would not be respected on the battlefield. And what about the Japanese doctrine of no surrender? How did that come about? Was it uh, no surrender? And was it an ancient tradition in Japan or something? Uh, well, no, not exactly. I used to think so. But, you know, the, the samurai of old would have never participated in suicidal bonsai attacks. Uh, consider that in the first Sino... Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War, Japanese soldiers had actually surrendered and become prisoners. They were then welcomed back home to Japan with open arms in those days. Uh, the no-surrender policy was part of the 20th century asymmetrical warfare doctrine. Uh, Japanese militarists realized that if Japanese soldiers continued to have the option to surrender, Japanese soldiers might surrender in mass to the superior firepower of the enemy and lose battles. Victory could no longer be grasped from the jaws of defeat if Japanese soldiers could surrender. So surrender and retreat were drummed out of the Japanese soldier's head and considered dishonorable. This is a perversion of the Bushido Code. And what about Emperor Hirohito? Did he agree with the treatment of his soldiers and the atrocities that were committed basically in his name? Well, Hirohito is, a, I think, a complicated character. Uh, he was cut from an, uh, a different cloth uh, than Adolf Hitler. Hitler was pure evil, but I wouldn't say Hirohito was evil. Uh, he was a weak leader and unequal to the job of emperor that he was born into. Uh, Hirohito often found out after the fact what his military leaders and soldiers had done, 
and he failed to rein them in. Uh, for example, uh, Hirohito was upset about the rape of Nanking, but he was more concerned with the objective of winning the war in China and seemed willing to let things slide when his military committed atrocities if, if it didn't jeopardize victory. Uh, Hirohito only took decisive action when his neck was on the line. He believed the most important thing in Japan is the kokutai, the national polity. In other words, the most important thing is Hirohito and the preservation of the imperial system. And with regard to the U.S., Hirohito had to be talked into supporting the attack on Pearl Harbor, but once Japan started the war with America, he enthusiastically supported it. Behind the scenes, Hirohito micromanaged the Pacific War while maintaining a public image of being a figurehead emperor. Oh, I think a lot of Americans don't know that. Now, you said your wife's grandfather and I believe her uncle were soldiers in the Imperial Japanese Army. Did they ever speak to your wife about what they did in the war? Well, not, not really. Uh, my wife's maternal grandfather uh, from a samurai family, he fought in China. Uh, he didn't say much about the war other than he saw a lot of bad stuff go down. And, and of course, he never mentioned whether he participated in the bad stuff. Uh, my wife's paternal uncle uh, from, a, uh, from a peasant family, he also fought in China, and he never talked about it. Now, Pete, I, I used to think the Japanese don't like to talk about World War II because of a sore loser complex, but I don't think that's entirely the case. For the average Japanese soldier, life in the military during World War II was just pure hell. Many of them were conscripted and brutalized and forced in many cases to take part in atrocities and brutalize other human beings. The Japanese soldiers weren't even considered humans by their leaders. Uh, it's just not a time in their lives that most of them enjoyed and want to remember. Uh, but I must admit, although some Japanese soldiers totally bought into fighting spirit and may have enjoyed atrocities, Others just went along for fear of harsh and deadly retribution if, if they refused. So unlike America's World War II generation that looks back with fond memories on America totally united, the Japanese, and especially those who lived through it, would rather just forget about that nightmarish period of their own history. Have any Japanese veterans spoken out against what they were forced to do? Uh, yes, some have come forward. Um, actually, I've got a few quotes here I'll share with you. Uh, Imperial Japanese Army recruit Katsumi Watanabe, he, he has said, this quote, Hey, we need to take a break. We're ignorant. Oh, we going to a break? I um, just we're going to a break. Okay, no, I'll continue to quote. He, he says, uh, members of the military were ignorant and had lost their humanity. They thought that beatings were a form of education. And, and real quickly, uh, recruit Tsuyoshi Saka, and I think this is chilling. Yoshi Saka says, quote, Before inflicting punishment, they always said they were indoctrinating us with the military man's spirit. We were made to form a single line and stand at attention and then ordered to clench our teeth, close quote. And then the beatings would begin. Jeez, unbelievable. Okay, we have to go to break, Jeff. We will be right back, ladies and gentlemen. And we're glad you're listening to America's Web Radio. And uh, this break is going to be one of those that's uh, sort of an informal break. And remind everybody that we've got the JC that's Johns Creek Healing Wall that's open, and you can go by. It's the the Healing Wall is the fifty percent size of the Vietnam Wall in Washington D.C. And this is the wall that toured the United States for many years, and it's now in its final resting place in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
You can go by basically any time you want to and and see it. Uh, They'll be uh, setting up a situation where you can go online and find exactly where a friend or relative is uh, or their name is on the healing wall, and this will be done very shortly. And I also want to remind you about something that is just absolutely the best, and that's the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And uh, we recommend everybody go to that if they're traveling to Atlanta for vacation or they live in Atlanta or around Atlanta, please go by the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and it covers all wars. And uh, it is very interesting. Take your kids, explain to them who and what they might be looking at, and uh, you'll find it very inspirational. And we appreciate that um, the director of it, is Rick White, Colonel Rick White, retired, and uh, he uh, he does an outstanding job. He and Paul Langer uh, do a, a great, great job, and we appreciate it, and we want everybody to support the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. We'll be back with Pete and Jeff right after this. I'm finding this fascinating because, as I told Jeff during a break, my father was in Japan after right after the war, and he told us the horror stories. He was stationed in uh, Pearl Harbor as well, and as he left Pearl Harbor to go to Japan and help set up uh, Radio Tokyo, uh, you know, just some of the scenes that he saw, and uh, just incredible. Anyway, we're going to get back to them right after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And it's yours, Pete. Okay, America, we're back with uh, U.S. Navy veteran and Pacific War historian Jeff Johnson. Uh, He's going to talk about the lead-up to Operation Downfall, the invasion of the Japanese home islands that almost took place 75 years ago this year. Now, Jeff, before we get to the planned invasion... Take us through America's strategy in the Pacific. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, after Pearl Harbor, uh, FDR got with Churchill, and they they agreed to put priority on winning the war in Europe first. Uh, This meant that the U.S. military would allocate about a quarter of its strength to the Pacific campaign and then go all in after Germany is defeated. This is something that, of course, did not sit very well with General Douglas MacArthur, Uh, U.S. military leaders believed the militarists controlling the Japanese government must be overthrown to end the war. This will require a U.S. invasion of the Japanese home islands. Now, after the Battle of Midway that turned the tide of the war in June of 1942, uh, the U.S. developed a two-pronged island-hopping strategy to get close enough to Japan for an invasion of the home islands. Uh, the first prong, uh, General Douglas MacArthur leads an island-hopping campaign in the southwest Pacific. The other prong, uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz leading an island-hopping campaign further north in the Gilberts, Marshalls, and Marianas. Now, many this is important to, to know, many Japanese island garrisons were leapfrogged. They were skipped over rather than attacked by the U.S., and many Japanese soldiers cut off from resupply and reinforcement died from starvation rather than from American bullets. This was part of the U.S. island-hopping strategy. 
and this is very important, something I, I want your viewers to really understand, is, is this. Throughout the fighting in the Pacific, the U.S. military will mostly fight Japanese garrisons often cut off from reinforcement and resupply. For example, the Battle of Iwo Jima. The U.S. military will not bloody the bulk of the Imperial Japanese Army, which is stationed in China, known as the Kwantung Army, or the several Japanese divisions stationed on the Japanese home islands. Okay, well, what about the air campaign against Japan? You know, what role did the U.S. Army Air Force play in uh, preparing for the U.S. invasion of Japan? And I think this might be an interesting question for our listeners. How was your wife's family in Japan impacted by U.S. bombing raids? Oh, they were very impacted. Um, uh, but the first, uh, let me get to the strategy here. So, uh, and actually, I'll just start off by talking about the first strategic bombing mission against the Japanese home islands, which, which occurred in June of 1944 against the city of Yawata, Japan. This was known as the Pittsburgh of Japan for its steel industry. Uh, the mission was conducted by B-29 super fortresses flying from U.S. airfields in China. A B-29 flying from China could only reach uh, the southwestern main island uh, of Kyushu. Uh, and during that mission, only one bomb struck the steelworks. Uh, weather over Japan was a huge factor. Now, my father-in-law, Toshio Matsunaga, he was five years old at the time and living with his mother and several siblings in a house near the steelworks in Yawata. And this experience traumatized my father-in-law, and to this day, uh, he still hears air raid sirens in, in his ear. Uh, but let me talk more about the strategic bombing strategy uh, in China. This was Operation uh, uh, Matterhorn, it was called. Uh, strategic bombing flying out of China to Japan just wasn't effective. We needed air bases closer to Japan. And this is where the island hopping uh, campaign comes in, and, and that campaign secures the Marianas starting in June and July of 1944. This allows B-29s flying from Saipan, Guam, and Tinian greater reach over the Japanese home islands. However, B-29s will continue to experience poor bombing results flying high-altitude missions over Japan. As always, weather is a huge factor there. Uh, now, back to my wife's family. Uh, B-29s flying again from China uh, tried to take out the Yawata Steelworks a second time in August of 44, again with poor results. Uh, my father-in-law's mother at that time decided to move the family away from the Steelworks and to safer ground. They moved into a new house located on the outskirts of a nearby city called Kokura, Japan, about five miles to the east of Yawata. Uh, back to uh, uh, the bombing campaign. So in 1945, uh, General Curtis LeMay takes over command of the 20th Air Force, and he introduces low-level nighttime incendiary firebombing against Japanese cities. This was much more effective. And, uh, for example, uh, Tokyo. Tokyo was firebombed in March of 1945, killing 100,000 Japanese civilians. This is more then will be killed by each of the atomic bombs. And this is the greatest loss of life in a single action in history and killed four times more people than the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, we get to April 1945. This, this Pete, is where our friend Bill Montgomery, uh, a Marine Corps vet, where he fights the Battle of Iwo Jima. 
which secures that island as a fighter escort base and an emergency landing base for B-29s uh, flying to and from Japan. Uh, but the remainder of the uh, air campaign, my wife's family, uh, they remain in their new house in Kokura, Japan, which seemed to be a good decision. The Americans weren't bombing Kokura. Yeah, I guess that was a good decision. Uh, do you think the Japanese uh, knew that the U.S. intended to invade their homelands and where? Uh, yeah, I believe the Japanese knew where we were coming. Uh, you got to consider after the fall of Saipan to put the B-29s within reach and MacArthur's liberation of the Philippines, the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters knew it was just a matter of time before the Americans invade Japan. Now, Hirohito and the militarist and the Supreme Council for the direction of the war, well, they continued to hope against hope for a decisive battle against the U.S. in the Pacific that would provide leverage for the Japanese to negotiate a truce and keep much of its empire intact. But short of that, the Japanese knew we were coming, and they began to prepare for a final decisive battle inside the home islands. Huh. All right, did the U.S. ever target Emperor Hirohito in the Tokyo bombing raids, and do you think killing him would have shortened the war? Oh, no. Actually, the U.S. intentionally tried not to bomb Hirohito or the Imperial Palace. U.S. military leaders believe that only Hirohito had the authority to order a surrender, and any Japanese military leader who tried to force a surrender certainly risk uh, being assassinated by the, the hardliners. So to answer your question, Pete, America needed Hirohito to remain alive. We were counting on him to come to his senses and order a surrender, uh, order a surrender and hopefully before the U.S. invades Japan. That's very interesting. Uh, what about the two atomic bombs? That brings us up to the atomic bombs. Tell us a little bit about the atomic bombing missions. Well, yeah, uh, what I find fascinating about the atomic bombs is that even if they worked, that was no guarantee that the Japanese would surrender. The, the atomic bombs were somewhat of a gamble for the U.S. Uh, the first atomic bombing mission over Hiroshima, it was executed perfectly by Paul Tibbetts piloting the Enola Gay. We've all heard about this. That was a textbook perfect bombing mission. Uh, the second atomic bombing mission involving Charles Sweeney piloting boxcar. Well, that one was a near failure, and I think much more fascinating than the first mission. Just about everything that could go wrong with a bombing mission did go wrong. And the second atomic bomb actually should have killed my father-in-law. Wow. Share some details about that, uh, the second atomic bomb. I, I think this is something most people don't know about and probably should know about. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go through it. Uh, so the first thing to know is that most bombing missions have a primary target and a secondary target, as was the case for the first and second atomic bombs. So, for example, on August 6, 1945, had Enola Gay been unable to drop Little Boy on Hiroshima, Paul Tibbetts would have flown and dropped, uh, he would have flown to the secondary target city of Kokura, and dropped the first atomic bomb on Kokura. That would have killed my father-in-law if, if that actually had happened. Now we go three days later to August 9, 1945. Kokura, not Nagasaki, Kokura is the primary target, and Nagasaki is the secondary target. The U.S. needed to take out an arsenal in Kokura with Fat Man, the second atomic bomb. 
The arsenal would supply weapons to the Japanese army during the planned U.S. invasion of Japan. And my father-in-law, on August 9, uh, 1945, he was at home 2.2 miles away from the Kokura arsenal. Now, there are two events that impacted the second uh, atomic bomb mission uh, that happened uh, the day before. This is August 8th I'm talking about. So on August 8th, the U.S. firebombs the Iwata Steelworks and finally takes it out. Iwata, where my father-in-law used to live, is located about six miles west of the Kokura Arsenal. This firebombing creates a lot of smoke and destroys 21% of Iwata. Now, back on the island of Tinian, technicians on August 8th accidentally insert a cable assembly backwards inside Fat Man, which caused a repair effort that risked detonating Fat Man and wiping out all the B-29 stations on Tinian. Now, imagine what the Japanese thought. They would have loved that. They would have seen it as karma for Hiroshima, of course. So let me move on uh, to August 9th uh, quickly. So... Uh, right after midnight, we've got a pre-flight check of boxcar and a 640-gallon reserve fuel tank is discovered to be faulty. But Sweeney decides to fly the mission anyway. He doesn't think he needs the reserve fuel. And then a few hours after takeoff from Tinian, when boxcar is in the air headed toward Japan, uh, the weaponeer and assistant weaponeer on board notice a warning light indicating that Fat Man is about to detonate at any moment. So they peek inside the bomb, flip two switches, and the warning light stopped blinking. They had improperly armed uh, the bomb shortly after takeoff. Wow. Now I'm going to move uh, up. Your thoughts there, Jeff. We'll get into boxcar flight when we come back. We've got to go to break, okay? You, you got it. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the uh, country wanted to participate in the I efforts of this group, it, and they it, wanted uh, to join, but they were unable to do uh, so do unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. Just all that asks. Thank you. deductible donation. Oh, by the way, I've got a uh, Japanese. Thank you. Sniper rifle that has never That's been fired, and Dad brought by swords and surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes. Q U I K stakes. Dad made the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's like you said early on. Now they're extremely nice. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. Yeah. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Pete, do you want to say anything about uh, World War II uh, folks? This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion? On America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Three, two, one, and it's yours. Okay, we're back with Jeff Johnson, expert on the planned invasion of Japan. We have the second B-29 headed toward Japan with the second atomic bomb. Tell us about the mission, Jeff. Yeah, and I'll wrap that up real quick because I know we want to get into uh, Operation Downfall in the remaining time we have. Uh, but Boxcar eventually reaches Kokura late and finds it covered with clouds and smoke. We believe the smoke was from the, uh, the firebombing of the Iwata Steelworks the day before. Boxcar makes three runs on the Kokura arsenal, attempting to drop the second atomic bomb there. The bombardier could never see the arsenal through the haze and clouds. At that point, they decided to hit the secondary target of uh, Nagasaki, uh, and they were off target uh, by a a mile and a half when when the bomb was finally dropped on Nagasaki. And then, almost out of fuel, boxcar goes to Okinawa to an uh, American airfield uh, to refuel and nearly crashes into a row of B-24 Liberators um, supplied with incendiary bombs. So uh, this mission very nearly failed. I think it's much more uh, fascinating than, uh, uh, than the, the first atomic uh, bomb mission, actually. But uh, what I'd like to do, uh, Pete, now is get into uh, Operation Downfall, the invasion of Japan. So there, I, I think people need to know that we came very close to invading Japan, uh, closer than most people uh, realize. And this is even after dropping the atomic bombs. So General George C. Marshall, who was chairman of the JCS, he was not convinced that dropping atomic bombs would result in a Japanese surrender. He believed atomic bombs would be better used tactically during an invasion. So it's it's sort of doubtful that additional atomic bombs would have been dropped on Japanese cities if Hiroshima and Nagasaki did not convince the Japanese to surrender. Now, after Nagasaki was bombed, Japanese communications through diplomatic channels ceased. It didn't look like they would surrender. So Marshall cabled MacArthur and says, quote, the president directs that we go ahead with everything we've got, close quote. Operation Downfall is a go immediately after Nagasaki. We're invading. What was, what was MacArthur's role? Well, MacArthur was tapped to command downfall. He was being considered for promotion to six-star general of the armies. And there have only been two six-stars in American history, and that, that was uh, John Pershing and George Washington. Uh, but MacArthur, he was actually appalled by the dropping of the atomic bombs. Uh, he believed the Japanese were close to surrendering without them, and he thought that if Japan were going to be invaded, MacArthur, well, he thought he should be the atomic bomb. Huh. How would the invasion of Japan differ from the Allied invasion of Europe on D-Day? 
Well, it would have been much different. So after D-Day in Europe, the war there was fought on a large scale with U.S. and British forces moving toward Germany along a, a broad western front and the Soviets moving towards Germany along a broad eastern front. Uh, the invasion in Japan will be much more surgical. So if you look at Japan on a map, it has four main islands. You've got Hokkaido to the north, Honshu under Hokkaido, which Tokyo is situated on, and then to the south you've got Shikoku, and then to the southwest you've got Kyushu. The island-hopping campaign enabled the U.S. military to capture Okinawa, located closest to the main island of Kyushu. So the U.S. would have used Okinawa as a staging base, to launch Operation Downfall, the invasion of Japan. Our, our friend Bill Montgomery, the, the Marine vet, uh, he would have trained, or he actually did train for the invasion of Japan and Hawaii, and he was slated to be sent to Okinawa, the staging area. Now, let me get into Downfall. Downfall is comprised of two phases. First, there's Operation Olympic, the invasion of Kyushu, X-Day. This is November 1st, 1945. Our friend Bill Montgomery and the 5th Marines will take part in Operation Olympic. Uh, this will involve the U.S. invading uh, Japan with a force four times the size of the D-Day invasion uh, of Europe. And during the Olympic, the U.S. will invade the southern tip of Kyushu, capture the port of Kagoshima, and 22 known Japanese airfields. We will use this tiny piece of Japan as a base to soften up the rest of Japan for Phase 2, which is known as Operation Coronet. Now, from southern Kyushu, this tiny piece of land, U.S. forces will base bombers that will bomb targets throughout Japan, and B-29s operating from the, Mariana, from the Marianas excuse me, will continue to fly missions against Japanese industrial targets. The mighty 8th Air Force, legendary for flying B-17 flying fortresses over Europe, well, they will be sent to Okinawa. They will transition to B-29 super fortresses, and they will bomb targets throughout Japan under the command of General Jimmy Doolittle. Operation Olympic, this first phase, is expected to take four months to complete. That brings us to phase two, Operation Coronet, the invasion of Honshu. This is scheduled for Y-Day, March 1st, 1946. During Coronet, U.S. forces will hit the beaches on Honshu, south of Tokyo, then fight their way north and capture Tokyo by December of 1946 to force an unconditional Japanese surrender. American forces trying to take Tokyo, Japan. Tell us about the estimated cost of the planned invasion of Japan. Well, there is really no official casualty estimate that all U.S. commanders agreed on. U.S. planners generally came to estimate that up to 1 million U.S. killed and 5 million to 10 million Japanese killed. Uh, compare this to 400,000 U.S. servicemen killed in all of World War II and a little less than 200,000 Japanese killed by the atomic bombs. Now, something I'd like to point out, Pete, is critics of the atomic bombs often point to initial low invasion casualty estimates, some as low as less than 100,000 U.S. killed. But I think this is cherry-picking probably to advance a political narrative. You have to consider that during the build-up to downfall, casualty estimates varied wildly. Uh, however, critics of the atomic bombs, they felt to recognize that the U.S. code-breaking program, known as MAGIC, this allowed U.S. planners to monitor 
uh, Japanese communications and detect a massive buildup of Japanese divisions at the landing beaches in Japan in the summer of 1945. So by August 1945, the U.S. fully expects to lose one million men. That's when Truman says, we've got to drop the bombs. You also have to consider that draft inductions in the U.S. were nearly doubled in March of 1945 to 100,000 men per month in preparation for the grim losses expected in an invasion of Japan. What were the Japanese plans for the American invasion? Oh, well, they, they had a plan. Uh, they knew we were coming and they were getting prepared. It was called Operation Ketsugo. This was their defensive plan. It involved several Japanese uh, divisions, some of them brought over from China, defending the home islands, as well as a civilian population that is trained to kill American invaders and sacrifice their own lives in defense of the homeland. Now, the Japanese expected to win this final decisive battle on the homeland. This is their definition of victory. Make the invasion of Japan so bloody that the American people will refuse to accept the grim losses and pressure U.S. leaders to call for a truce that leaves the militarists in charge of the Japanese government and much of Japan's imperial possessions intact. Now, Truman and U.S. military leaders believe that a conditional surrender or truce will only lead to a second, more costly Pacific War in the future. This is a lesson they learned with Germany in World War II one with that truce. The Imperial Japanese High Command, they estimate that up to 20 million Japanese out of a population of 100 million will be killed in Operation Ketsugo, the defensive plan. This leaves 80 million Japanese to carry on the empire of Japan after the Americans are sent back home. Jeff, this is so interesting, and we're going to be running out of time, but very briefly, what would the beach landings been like for our troops? Uh, it would have been a pure hell. Uh, because Japan's coastline is rocky and too steep to support amphibious landings, with the exception of a few beaches, the Japanese knew exactly where and exactly when we were landing. Uh, Marshall wanted to drop up to nine atomic bombs on, on the invasion uh, beaches of Kyushu before the landing. So our, our soldiers would have gone in with gas masks and an atomic wasteland. Uh, Japanese divisions attacking us that are reinforced and, and uh, resupplied. We were also willing to use chemical weapons, and so were the Japanese. Chemical weapons can get inside caves and tunnels where the Japanese and also civilians uh, would, would be uh, hiding. And real briefly, on X-Day alone, it was estimated that the Japanese... Uh, would hit American ships and our friend Bill Montgomery with the Marines with 5,000 kamikazes, 800 suicide speedboats, 350 suicide subs, and 1,000 man torpedoes, all attacking American forces simultaneously. And the Japanese anticipated that 20% American casualties would occur before the Americans even touched the beaches. There would be at least 14... is amazing. That's okay. Uh, we're going to run out of time here. Doggone, the Japanese were preparing for the U.S. invasion. What compelled them to surrender after two atomic bombs were dropped? Well, I think the atomic bombs, uh, also the Russians uh, oh. declaring war on Japan, and the U.S. agreement to allow Hirohito to remain emperor under uh, MacArthur's uh, occupation rule. You know, again, Hirohito made a decisive decision when the skin was on the line. Uh, now, 
something real briefly I want your listeners to understand. Uh, Pete, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we're going to have to. We're out of time. I'm sorry. And I hope Jeff will oh, come back. and we'll, when you're having fun. We'll, <laughs> we'll do it again. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Thanks, Jeff. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.